when our feet hit the floor in the morning, we've got a reason for getting out of bed every day. What is that reason? I wanted to be a professional golfer. I had no idea what I wanted to be. I just knew I wanted to make a lot of money. Welcome to Your Financial Sobriety, a podcast that challenges conventional beliefs about money and life. There are three relationships in life that really matter. Our relationship with people, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with money. And they're all very tied closely to one another. If you've ever struggled with any of these relationships at any point in your life, then you're in the right place. I'm Matthew Grishman. I'm the co-founder of Gebhardt Group. We're a private wealth management firm headquartered just outside San Francisco, California. I'm joined by my business partner, my BFF, Jim Gebhardt. Hello there. And he's the guy who got this whole party started when he opened the doors of our firm back in 2005. Jim and I created Your Financial Sobriety because we want to help a lot of people. We're on a mission to become the most disruptive money influencers of our time. If after listening today, you're able to take one step closer to keeping your money more aligned with the people, places, and experiences that mean the most to you, then Jim and I got one step closer to accomplishing our mission. I love hearing that. That is just that I just get so fired up every time you read that. It's pretty cool what we get to go to work and do every day. Absolutely. So what speaking of that, what are we talking about today? Well, I think you and I need to catch up just on what we did together last time. When we got together, we kind of gave an overview of what your financial sobriety is all about. We talked about the three relationships and the various modules, this curriculum that you and I have built Mm -hmm. based on the principles we wrote about in the book Financial Sobriety. That first relationship with money is where we're really going to start most of our work. And last time that you and I were together doing this, we started with that module one, which we called getting started on the right path. That was where we just really pondered some pretty deep questions about money that really got us to 30,000 feet. We talked about that first question of what keeps you up at night about money. Then after that writing exercise, which I, I think it's, it's good to push pause while, while we have these writing exercises and, and take that time during the podcast while it's fresh to actually think about these questions, get them on paper. I mean, by all means, you can do it after the fact, but I think it's most effective. At least we found, I mean, tell me At, if I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, when, when we do it- When, when we, we're sitting with people. Absolutely. So if you haven't had a chance to do it, hit the pause button. Go get some paper, go get a journal, and start writing those kinds of questions. If you did do it, if you have it handy, reference it. If not, and you're in the car, then we'll come back to this. But yeah, those writing exercises are super helpful. The, the, two, the two big ones that we were trying to accomplish in the first module was that first one of what keeps you up at night about money. The second question being, what does financial sobriety look like to you? And I hope if you took the time to go through these writing exercises that something meaningful came out of that exercise for you. What did that feel like for you when we were talking about it last time? Well, it just lightens me up. I think those kinds of writing exercises, what does it mean to you? Is it a simple walk in the park with a loved one or just your dog? Is it going to the coffee shop and getting a latte and just having some time to be by yourself and think or connecting with an old friend? It's a very personal journey. Yeah. What what does financial sobriety look like to me could be very different than what does financial sobriety look like to you. I'm glad you got some real takeaway and, and that podcast episode just helped you and me each with our own 
journey of financial sobriety. Yeah, because ordinarily at Christmas, it's, you know, caution to the wind, light up the credit card a little bit with a whole bunch of stuff, get my wife all upset at, you know, the fact that I bought her more than our our dollar threshold of what we're willing to spend, and I sneak a couple more presents. And why did you do that? And she gets mad at me. And what's the point of that when the, the two of us are on the same page about the things we want to accomplish financially in, in 2020? I don't know. It's a it's a powerful exercise. Yeah, it, it just it makes sense. And I think before we get into today's teaching and, and what we're going to be learning with the next module, I think it's important to reiterate something with this. And it came from what you just said. Financial sobriety is a journey. It's not a destination. So even though we may have taken some time to do some writing exercises, you and I have done these writing exercises multiple times. Totally. Because we don't really ever arrive at this stage. It's just this constant progress that we're just always trying to improve upon. The idea of taking time this time of year to just sit down and redefine what financial sobriety means to me and what it is about money that's keeping me up at night, you'd be surprised. I mean, for me, the the answers to those two questions have changed a lot, even once we began this journey of financial sobriety. I bet. So that kind of tees us up pretty good, I think, for what we're going to talk about today. Module two of the Your Financial Sobriety Journey is all about what we call taking an inventory, or in our firm, we affectionately refer to it as... A bag of crap analysis. Exactly, the bag of crap analysis. More on that later. Yes, we're we're going to get into where we came up with that name. Um, But this is really the starting point for your financial sobriety. Once we get an idea of what keeps us up at night about money, what our definition of financial sobriety looks like, those really set the stage for the direction of where we're going. The next step and what we're going to really get into here in this episode and probably into the next episode is this idea of taking an inventory, of being able to gather a lot of data about where I am today so I can then begin to realize whether or not I'm on path I'm on track to go from where I am today to what that vision of financial sobriety really looks like. So one thing I would like to add to that is this concept of how we measure progress. Absolutely. We measure progress backwards, not forwards. Tell me more about that. And it's a concept that I learned a number of years ago in a program called the Strategic Coach, Dan Sullivan's program, who some of our listeners may be in that program or be familiar with Dan. And it's this concept that if you constantly are measuring your goals or your objectives by looking forward, it's like the horizon. You can't reach it. It just keeps constantly getting pushed out in front of you. Well, I would imagine you're probably comparing yourself to where you are today to where you think you're supposed to be if you're constantly looking at the horizon. Absolutely. And let alone the fact that that's a moving target as it keeps getting you know kind of pushed out in front of you. Yep. What we do is we measure our progress in arrears. So we like to see where we come from in the last year with our personal balance sheets, with our corporate balance sheet, and measure that progress looking backwards as really the the barometer of how are we doing and where do we need to course correct. Yeah, it sets us up to win. There's almost a certainty that there's going to be some progress that we get to realize and feel good about. Absolutely. All right. Well, let, let's do this. Let's Since we're going to help people understand what this concept of taking an inventory, what this bag of crap analysis looks like. Taking a bit of a historical perspective, going back again to that story of when you decided to leave the big Wall Street brokerage firm and start your own shop, when you opened up Gebhardt Group, there there was a reason behind that. And I think that gets us started on this concept of, of what is an inventory? What does a thorough inventory look like? 
Yeah, I mean, I had spent 10 years at this point with the big brokerage firms, and they have a very prescribed process to how they do things. And retirement planning in those big firms is all about numbers. I felt as though there had to be something more important than that. When you say numbers, you mean dollars and percentages. Dollars, percentages, probabilities of successful outcomes, a a very clinical- Math. Math, left brain, yes or no model. Okay. I was frustrated by that because every client you meet with, they're actually, they're people. Can you believe that? (laughs) And people have different circumstances, different issues, different challenges, different things that motivate them. I didn't want the experience to be just rote and mathematical. However, I couldn't really put my finger on what it was initially. I mean, it it took me the better part of, frankly, seven years to figure it out. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you had this inkling that there was more to people than just their money. But how to then turn that into some kind of process for helping people achieve their goals in a very profound way by incorporating these parts of their life that have very little to do with their money, that that's not a process that's just going to flush itself out, is it? No, not at all. I mean, and, you, you had to experience some things in life for this to happen, yes? Well, in the, in the same context that we measure progress looking backwards, here we are a number of years later into a story I'll share here in a second, and being able to look back now a number of years later and realize how this experience back in December of 2012 was really a pivotal turning point for me and our recognition of our process. Well, I I know I've heard this story before, but tell me again, your story about what happened in 2012 is is profound. It was about 9.45 at night. I was lying in bed. I had my earbuds in. I was listening to, of all things, a podcast. (laughs) My wife was already asleep on my right. My 11-year-old daughter, Emily, was on my left. She was reading, just kind of joining us in bed and having a nice, quiet moment. And she's tapping me on the shoulder, Daddy, 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 your your cell phone's ringing. Oh, oh, okay, honey, that's okay. Could Could you get it for me? So she trots out into the kitchen and comes back and hands me the phone. And by that point, stopped ringing. It was my mom and dad. My mom and dad. What are, time at night was this? This is at nine forty-five on a Thursday night. And they live they in Syracuse. Live on the East Coast. Yeah. My anxiety kind of perks up a little. I hop out of bed, and as I start walking towards the kitchen, the house phone rings. I look at the house phone, and caller ID says it's my parents' phone number. Well, by this point, you know I'm I'm even feeling it again here, telling the story with you. It just kind of you just you're bracing for something. You don't know what it is. I sit down, I collect myself, I click the button, and all I could hear was my mother crying in the background. My sister answers the phone, and she says, Jim, it's Cheryl. Uh-oh. I said, is everything, is everything, what's the matter, Cheryl, what's the matter? Well, we don't have a lot of information at this point, uh, but Stevie's dead. And I, I, I don't even know what she said, right? Because I, all I hear is my mom crying. I'm thinking this is something to do with my dad. Cheryl, what did you say? What you said? You said Stevie's. What? What are you talking about? I just talked with him on Thursday. That's not possible. Who's Stevie? Stevie's my brother. He's my fifty-six-year-old brother. He was in perfect health. I'm trying to hold it together. Then the shock of it hits me. Emily's standing in the doorway. Our daughter, who you know answered the phone, she clearly knows something's wrong. 
fast forward, I hop on a plane, I go back to Syracuse, and we spend the next several days just crying our eyes out. We don't have any real information. We don't really know what happened. It's just before, it's just a couple of weeks before Christmas. This is supposed to be an absolutely, you know, joyous time of year. This is December 12th, 2012. This is December 12th, 2012. We make the decision that, you know, and, I, and here I am as a financial advisor, right? I'm not my brother's financial advisor, but I'm a financial advisor. And we've got to figure out what his wishes are. None of us knew he was divorced. He had a roommate, but that was just to help share the rent. It wasn't like a partner or anything. So you, I mean, you went into function mode pretty quickly. I mean, you, you cried for a couple of days, but then the financial well, advisor and you took over yeah, to that, where we, we've got a, he's got arrangements I'm sure he would want us to make. And he's got finances we need to deal with. There's stuff we got to take care there's of. There's stuff that we got to take care of. And he was an extraordinarily organized guy. My thought was, it's got to be in his townhouse. What what is it? What is it that you're looking the for? The will, the trust, ah. the instructions, the you know, just, you know, the the documents. So what happened? So we decide in the middle of winter to hop in the car. I I grew up in Syracuse, New York. My brother lived outside of Albany. Hop on the throughway, trot across New York and a little bit of snow. It's myself, my brother-in-law Randall, Steve's daughter, and my mom decides to go along. My nearly 80-year-old mom decides to go along. I didn't think that was a particularly good idea, but hey, can't stop her. It's it's her son. So we get to the house. My brother also was a hunter uh, and a gun collector and a, and a marksman. He would do a pistol competition shooting. And I knew he was very comfortable having guns around the house. Randall and I go in the house and look for guns, find a gun under the couch, cushion, find another gun up in his bedroom. But the first thing I think of is I walk in and I see the dining room table. His laptop is up. His laptop was powered on. He had a little cocktail glass off to the side. He had a bunch of presents. Some were wrapped. Some weren't wrapped. The Christmas cards, the done pile and the unfinished pile. It was almost like a moment in time just stood still. It just drained the life out of me to see that, you know, whatever transpired here, was just unthinkable because my, my brother wasn't the type to leave a glass on the on the dining room sure. table. It would have been put in the sink or washed or what have you. So I fire up the laptop thinking, okay, here it is. My niece gave me the password. Here we go. Look in a couple files. Nothing's there. There's the plane ticket for his trip on December 28th to go visit friends in Germany. There's nothing there. No will, no nothing. Nothing. Hmm. That struck me as odd. A few years before... My brother was out visiting, and we're just hanging out, and he hands me this little laminated card. And I said, "What, Steve-o, what's this? What, what, what's this? Well, it's the combination to my safe in case anything ever happens. I want, I want you to have the combination to the safe. So fortunately, I had that. I, I, you know, I intentionally brought that back with me to Syracuse, brought it to Albany. I decide to go down into the basement and you know, open up the safe, and maybe he's got a, something in there. My brother-in-law, Randall, goes up into the bedroom where my brother had always had a locked filing cabinet. In his bedroom. In his bedroom next to his bed Hmm. for as long as I can remember. Now, you know, we're the modern family here, right? So we were a blended family of his, mine, and ours. I'm the youngest of four. My brother was 16 years older. So at this point, I'm I'm 40-ish. He's in his mid-50s. 
my brother-in-law is going to go upstairs and open up the filing cabinet and figure that out. I go downstairs and I'm, I'm working on the lock. I got the combination, but I am just so anxious. My hands are trembling and I, I, and the, and the lock was well used. So the lock was a little sloppy and I just, I could not get this lock open. So what'd you do? I sat down and I started to cry. I sat on the basement steps and I just, I started losing it because I mean, how can this be happening? What is going on? This is on, this is unthinkable. I took a couple deep breaths and came to the realization I, I've got to I got to pull it together. I've just got to be strong for my mom, strong for my niece. I can't I just I can't fall apart. But just about the point I, I give up on the lock, my brother-in-law is upstairs like, "Hey, Jim, hey, come on up here for a second. I think to myself, "Oh dear God, he got he found it. He got the cabinet open and he found the will. Found the will. Yep. So I go flying up the stairs, up into his bedroom. Randall's got, he had drilled the lock out, is how he got the thing open. And he's sitting there and he hands me this manila envelope. So I sit down on the very bed where my brother had died a number of days earlier. And I open this manila envelope with an expectation of seeing the will. What I actually saw took my breath away. And to this day, it still brings tears to my eyes. It was a folder full of drawings, colored crayon drawings, from me as a seven-year-old boy to my brother. Wow. One of which, the one that was on top, was Santa coming down the chimney, and there's me next to the fireplace playing with presents and you know waiting for Santa. And, and it says, to Stevie, love Jamie. And Jamie was my nickname as a, as a little boy. I don't even know what came over me, but it was the realization to me that there are things so important beyond money, beyond statements, beyond wills, that my brother kept this in a locked filing cabinet next to his bed for 40 years. That's incredible. He had moved many times around the world, and this folder was, you know, this manila folder was clearly dog-eared and old and everything else. And there were a collection of these colored so crayon you, drawings in there. So your brother's got a file cabinet with what you would think are all his most important documents locked up next to his bed. And what you find in there are drawings. Not financial statements, not a will, but what were important to him. It was months later, my sister was going through a box of photos and random papers that she had gathered up as we had to move him, you know, move him out of his townhouse and do all that. She's delirious. It's late on a Sunday. She's just grabbing one piece of paper after another out of this box and looking at old, old family photos of the two of them when they were little. And she doesn't think anything of it. And she reaches down into the box and pulls out uh, what she thinks is another kind of stack of papers, pictures, and it's his will. Wow. So your brother, who was fairly financially aware, very kept great records, handed you a little passcode for his gun safe, took more care in non-financial documents to be locked up by his bed than he did his own will. So there are things in life that are so much more precious, so much more important, so much more valuable than a bank statement, a brokerage statement, or a will. That was the revelation that I had about our planning process and that we needed to open it up well past money. 
that it had to be about the things that matter most to the client. And in the, in the very emotional process of going through this situation, the big takeaway for me was that we, we got to go deeper, right? We have to be daring enough as professionals to be willing to cross a little bit of the great divide in terms of just staying where it's safe and talking about money and numbers and, and probabilities, but really diving into those things that for the client are so much more valuable and important than what the bank statement says. Oh, yeah. Well, this is kind of, I mean, that experience for you as you've shared it with me was the experience that really germinated this concept of the wealth formation experience, that we would have a financial planning process that was an actual experience where the first four letters in form and formation mean something, especially- They mean mean everything. Yeah, they mean everything. So when we talk about this idea of an inventory and taking an inventory, just with your experience with your brother, Steve, it sounds like this idea of family, occupation, recreation, money. I mean, this is where it all started. This is where where we got started with looking at a really deep inventory of all these things that are so meaningful in our life. And when you lose someone that you absolutely love and adore as tragically as we did, it makes you take inventory of life. Sure. Right? It makes you take inventory of the people that mean the most to you. And I don't know if at this point we want to dive in on on each of these absolutely. in terms of okay. So so family, and you and I have talked a lot about this with our clients, certainly not in this podcast yet, but family to us are the people that mean the most to you. And they don't necessarily have to be blood family. I just came off of a absolutely spectacular weekend. I turned 50 on January 4th, had a sensational party surrounded by, unfortunately, no family because they're scattered all over the country. But it was my family because these friends that I was with, are they are family to me, right? With the world being as big and as spread out as so many families are today. You don't necessarily have the nucleus down the street around, you know, around the corner from you. So for us, we, the way we like to think and the way we like to measure family are who are the people in your life that give you the most energy? Who are the people that you can't wait to spend time with? Now, this is a little bit of a sticky subject because it's not always blood family. Sure. It's not always the people that it's supposed to be. We know, we know that through a lot of client situations. Yep. It certainly can be, but it doesn't have to be. It, it's really, for me at least, it's been a matter of, like you said, defining the people who bring the greatest amount of energy into my life. But this also has, this is kind of where money comes back into our lives. It's really, who are the people in my lives that I want my money to be positioned in a way that it supports me in my relationships with these people? In other words, how do I take these people who are so important to me and make sure that my money is in alignment with supporting these relationships that I have with people? Absolutely. One of the writing exercises we love doing with people when they come in and we have this this first inventory talk is we ask people to sit down and answer two questions. And usually we would recommend taking at least a half a page for each one of these questions. So let me put the questions out there now. We'll leave it up to you to decide whether you want to press pause and answer the question now or whether you'd like to wait till the episode's over and and ponder this. But here are the two questions. First question, 
when taking an inventory about who your family are, as Jim teed up, who are the people in my life that bring me the greatest amount of energy? Question number one. Who are the people in my life who bring me the greatest amount of energy? Question number two. Who are the people that suck the life out of me? Not an easy exercise, but something very important from a wealth formation experience inventory standpoint of, again, if the goal here is financial sobriety and aligning our financial resources with the people, places, and experiences that mean the most to us, this is a critical, critical step for you to take in the inventory process. It's all about energy creation in this sense. And it's about being honest with yourself. Yeah, giving yourself permission to look at the people in your life that suck the life out of you, that it's draining to be around them. It doesn't give you permission to never engage with them, but awareness is such a big part of this process. Yes. Awareness around who gives me energy, awareness around who takes the energy, you know, sucks it out of me. How helpful was this exercise for you and Beth figuring out who's going to be part of this birthday celebration Saturday night? Absolutely. 100%. I I did not want a restaurant party. I didn't want a 50-person party. I wanted a, just a small, casual group of friends that we could hang out with and be ourselves. And, and they bring you great energy. And they bring me great energy. And we would encourage you as you write that list, be as, as real as you can be with yourself on who those people are. The reality is you're going to look at some of the names and go, well, I can't really put them down on the piece of paper. But it's just an awareness thing. And again, you don't have to now ignore them. It doesn't give you permission to ignore them and not take care of them or not be in relationship with them. But it's it's aware. You're trying to be aware of where do I leak some oil? Yep. It's going to be a real helpful exercise again when we get down to how we position money in our lives and and who are the where are the relationships that we want that money to be most supportive of. Let's move from family to occupation. The second, what we would call cornerstone to the inventory process. Now, when I hear the word occupation, I think job. I think my work. Right. And we're going to broaden that definition. We work with clients who are retired. So We occu- work with clients who aren't necessarily retired but don't work for money. So occupation can mean more than just the nine-to-five job. We define it as how you give your gifts to your greater community in the world. In effect, it, it's the reason why your feet hit the floor every day would be another way to say that. Absolutely. Okay. So with that, let's take that definition of occupation since what we're really looking to explore more about are the ways we give our gifts and talents to the world, meaning when our feet hit the floor in the morning, we've got a reason for getting out of bed every day. What is that reason? So what I would suggest for another writing exercise Again, taking the opportunity to press pause on the podcast and thinking about this. Two things that I would consider writing about regards to occupation. First, is to take that inventory and describe how you give to the world your unique gifts and talents through your work, your volunteerism, however it is you're out there executing that every day. Write about that. Describe that to us. Once you've done that, the second thing that I would suggest writing about is tell us about your dream job that you had as a child. I love this one. I love this one because when we ask new clients this, it sometimes takes them a while. Oh, yeah. Right? They got to unclog the cobwebs and go back and remember being 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. That, for me, was an easy one. 
I wanted to be a professional golfer. And at the age of 10, I knew it. And it, it was like somebody unlocked the door to a, a level of connection, a level of energy, a level of clarity. I was like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. So for a lot of people, I think they're going to know the answer to that right away. Other people, it might take a little bit of time. Do you remember what yours was as a kiddo? As a kid, I had no idea what I wanted to be. I just knew I wanted to make a lot of money. Right. And ironically, for a short period of time, when I wasn't doing too well in college, I all of a sudden developed this dream of wanting to become a New York City police officer. I wanted to be a cop. And when I sit now today thinking back on that and what motivated me to want to be a police officer, there was something about righting wrongs, this idea of getting another chance, right? Do-overs, fixing the wrongs that had happened, first in other people's lives, helping them fix the wrongs in their lives, and then with further introspection on this is, is being able to fix the wrongs in my own life. And although I never wound up signing up for the New York City Police Department, it's interesting to see how this path of financial sobriety that you and I have been on together has kind of given me the platform to do some of that work. It's been interesting to have conversations with you about your desire to be a professional golfer and what you wanted to give the world with your greatness as a golfer. Sure. And how that's manifested itself as a financial advisor. It was really the fact that by the time I was about 16, I mean, I, I was I was on a pretty hot trajectory at 12, 13, 14. By that point, my dad had started his own business and- I needed to work for the family business. Mm -hmm. My summers were devoted to working for my dad and supporting the business more so than being able to go explore golf tournaments in New York State, golf tournaments in New England, lessons, the cutting edge equipment, all those kinds of things. The reality of it was by the time I was about 16, 17, we just, we didn't have enough, we were a comfortable family, but we just didn't have enough money for me to be able to go do these kinds of travel tournaments and the lessons and all that goes with trying to pursue a, any career in professional sports. That must have been disappointing. Oh, it was heartbreaking because I, I watched my, my dear friend and competitive nemesis, a guy by the name of Tom Scherer, who I, I hope is listening to this podcast one day. We had great fun duking it out as kids. And he went on to win the New York State Junior Championship, went on to play in the PGA Tour. And had a, had a wonderful career doing it. So it was very heart-wrenching for me by the time I was 17 to realize, eh, this isn't, isn't going to happen. About that same time, however, I came to the realization that, well, what, what was the hang-up? Where was the limitation? It was money. So I wanted to understand this money thing. How do you make money? Where does money come from? How do you grow money? All those kind of stereotypical things, which unlocked a different kind of competitive spirit in me to be able to go help people protect their dreams. And if we can solve this money issue, either having too much or too little, because there are, there are problems on both ends of that stick, that I'd be able to write a little bit of the wrong that I felt, write mm -hmm. a little bit of that victim, you know, how come I wasn't lucky enough to have the, the money and the lessons and all that stuff? Sure. But I can spend the rest of my life helping other people do that. Well, and, and I think what came from that experience and, and why we put so much time and effort into this idea of writing down these two components to occupation, 
how I give my gifts to the world and what my dream job was as a child is because so many people show up in our world when they're going through some major transition in life, whether they've been forced into the transition or they're planning for the transition. And there's so much uncertainty about what that next stage in life is going to look like. What's next? In many cases, we call it life 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, depending on where you are, where they are. Right. So this inventory process is so important for helping us set the foundation in place for being able to have conversations about what life 2.0 is going to look like. The money part of it, really, with all the years we've been doing this, can sometimes get a lot simpler when we can answer some of these bigger questions like, how am I going to spend my time for the next 20 or 30 or 40 years? So getting into this idea of what my dream job was as a child how I give my gifts and talents to the world, and thinking less about the job descriptions or titles that I have and looking more at the skills, abilities, and desires. That's where we can get to this core root of kind of designing what the next stage of life looks like, and it starts with this part of the inventory. If you have a big bag of money, but you have no clarity on what you're going to do with your time after you're done earning a living, I think it's fair to say you're going to be pretty miserable. Yeah. That's been our experience. We meet so many clients that are on the journey of trying to collect as much money as they can, right? They try to accumulate as much money as they can, and then they're going to unplug and stop doing whatever that was because either they don't want to anymore, they're miserable, they physically can't, whatever it is. That discovery around what's next, life 2.0, 3.0, is pivotal, pivotal to this concept of true wealth and feeling wealthy because there's so much more to it that we're diving into here than the money. Well, let's do that. Let's let's go from occupation now, because that's going to create a lot more conversation as we move through these different modules of financial sobriety. Let's talk about the R in wealth formation experience, that R, which stands for recreation. Now, recreation is just a big word for having fun. And what we're really trying to uncover here is that foundation for how is it that we bring fun into our lives? What are the things that truly bring enjoyment into our lives? And there's a couple of questions that I would suggest, again, you take out some paper, you press the pause button, and take a minute to answer these questions. Here's the first one. Describe your favorite activities for having fun. Be as detailed as you can be, but write them down. Get them on paper. Visualize what these activities are. Question number two, describe your, pl- your favorite places to visit. Really think about that. And it could be as simple as the park in my community to some place in the world that just brings an incredible amount of joy to you. What are those favorite places? Write them down. Visualize them. Third question, what are the things that bring laughter into your life on a daily basis? Be very specific. Write them down. See them on paper. Because when we take the answers to these three questions and we start building out the picture of what recreation really looks like in life— Again, this is all about how we align our money to support these things that mean the most to us. Because we're building towards something. We're building towards something. We're building towards a life after earning a living, a life after the major transition. It could be rebuilding life after an unfortunate transition. Sure. And we we talked a little bit about this in the first and second episode. You had asked me some questions about some examples on how I used to spend money just yeah, without thought, like right? a crazy, crazy yeah. band, mindless spending. And so much of that had to do with recreation, how we like to go have fun. One of the most incredible decisions, and, and I thank God for my wife, Amy, every day because of this, we were celebrating our 20th anniversary two years ago. 
and we had this great idea that we were going to travel to Italy together. I had been to Italy. Amy had been to Italy. We had never been there together. It was a dream of ours to go experience this together on our 20th anniversary. I remember you talking to me about it and getting fired up about it and asking me where, you know, where should we explore? And Oh, I, we, we, we were so looking forward to it. And then, of course, all of that excitement started to wane when I started adding up the prices for the airfare, the hotels, the train passes, the food, the entertainment. And before you knew it, a 10-day trip to Italy was going to be pushing $15,000. And that was not doing it the way I may have one day before. That was doing it on a budget. This was this was more mindful. This was a more mindful way to go to Italy versus the way I would have done it, say, 15 years ago. My wife had a brilliant idea. What was it that we were looking to have together? We were looking for a beautiful place to get back to enjoying each other's company without the distraction of life, children, work. And she came up with this great idea. We had always talked about buying a travel trailer. It was something we wanted to do when the kids were little. We never did it. And this was the time that she thought it would be a good idea to explore this idea of buying a travel trailer. After six months of shopping, we knew we didn't want to buy a brand new travel trailer because we had never done it before. I had heard horror stories of people spending thirty, forty thousand dollars on a trailer, getting into these huge payment programs, and then hating it six months later. Yeah, and being I mean, stuck. you can finance one of these babies for like eleven years. Absolutely, get the fifty footer Class A with the you know outdoor TV <laughs> and the hot tub on the roof, and come on, let's yeah, go. Thank God we weren't sitting here fifteen years ago thinking about this because we would have. Instead, we spent eight thousand bucks on a used travel trailer, and we gave it a try and absolutely fell in love with it. For 54 bucks a day, we got to spend our 20th anniversary on the Northern California coast where literally we opened the trailer door, took two steps out the door, and our feet were in the sand. It was incredible. It sounds like some of the uh, hotels that you've stayed in down in Southern California on the beach. Oh, absolutely, except we just got clearer (laughs) on what it was we enjoyed about those trips. I mean, yes, we loved getting all the attention and all the comfort that came with a fancy hotel. But when we really zeroed in on what mattered most to us, it was about the intimacy that we had in the time together. And we got rid of all the excess stuff that just cost money and didn't really add to the enjoyment of what we were actually doing. That's powerful. My recreation has gotten so simple and so inexpensive relative to the way it used to be. And I get so much more enjoyment out of it as a result. Ready to talk about the last piece? Sure. The big M? The big M. The big M is money. And I bet you might think we're now going to talk about statements. How much money do you have? And dollars and percentages. Right. Well, when we first look at our inventory and we first want to talk about money, that's the last thing we want to know is how much we have. What we're generally more curious about is what your relationship with money has been like. What was your relationship with money as a kid? Yeah, I mean, you got you to gotta go all the way back. All the way back. I mean, Ideally, we could, we could go all the way back to your first recollection of money, right? Your first thought or understanding that there was such a thing as money. Not yeah. everybody can answer that one. My I, grandfather I know handed I can't. Me, yeah, my grandfather handed me a 50-cent piece. I didn't know money came in paper. I just thought it was coins when I was a kid because he collected 50-cent pieces and dollar pieces. And we used to play with them in his apartment in Yonkers, New York. And that's how I learned what money was, was from my grandfather. It was a short time after that he introduced us to paper money. But to me, that's, that's how I got my education on what money was. 
you and I have never seemed to be blown away by people who come in with bags and bags of money. What you and I always seem to be really interested in is understanding someone's relationship with money and that story that goes back to their childhood of how money was treated in their family as a child. Because of what that tells us about their relationship with money today and what it has the potential to become down the road. And so often we meet with couples. Yes. A couple comes together and forms a union and they get married more often than not. They each have their own money story that they bring to the equation. Oh, yes, they do. So now we're trying to work together in pursuit of a desired outcome for the couple, but husband has a different relationship, different story, different baggage, different history with money than the wife. We have to unpack that. Yep. We have to we have to unravel that and get into it a little bit so that we can understand where where they're coming from. If money has been scarce in one family and ridiculously abundant in another, I mean, what's what's the statistic on the number of marriages that end in divorce in the state of California these days? I would say nationally, it's just over 50%. In the state of California, it's close to 75% of all marriages end in divorce, where the number one reason is? Money. Money. Exactly. When it's a, it's, a, it's a money conflict, in our experience, that comes from... The other, the other party not really understanding, recognizing, accepting the other, the other partner's history and relationship with money. Yeah, it's, it's resentments. What we've seen over and over is that couples struggle because they have this diverse upbringing when it comes to money, and they bring this diversity into a relationship, and it never gets addressed. And what happens over time well, is— Well, where, where would it get addressed? It, well, I um, mean, you're going to go to— like, Premarital Walgreens counseling, maybe? And- <laughs> And get a prescription for right. it or talk to your doctor or your, I mean, where, where is, we don't, we don't have a structure. No. We don't have a venue. We don't have a, a place other than the therapist's office, right? Well, and any person who's ever talked to me about going through like premarital counseling, this is not one of the topics that's ever brought up is how to deal with money. It almost seems like the first time, at least from my experience, when we meet with clients here in town is that people are discussing this after 20 or 30 years of marriage, sometimes for the first time, because there is a conflict about money that comes up in our office, and they're seeking our guidance on how to solve this conflict. So here, for the money part, are four questions, four questions that we need to think about when we think about our relationship with money. And I'm going to suggest that we write these down, get visual with your relationship with money. Question number one, describe the primary role money plays in your life today. What does that mean? Describe the role that it plays in your life today, meaning what does money allow you to do? What is money doing for you today? How does it show up in your life? What does it give you the ability to do today? So there may be some redundancy with this. You may have answered some of this in the last couple of questions you asked about family, about occupation, about recreation. This is really designed to kind of tie all of that together. Make sense? Love it. Second question. Do you have too little money, too much money, or the right amount of money, and why? Be honest. Be honest with yourself about this. If you don't think you have enough money, write down why it is you don't think you have enough money. Maybe you think you might have too much. We've met people who go through something we call sudden wealth syndrome where all of a sudden they now have money and they once didn't. Whether they inherit it, they sell a business, they get a big bonus check at work. 
this idea of sudden wealth shows up in their lives. And many, many times I've come across people who have lived a certain way with money their whole lives and all of a sudden a big pile of money falls on their lap and it makes them uncomfortable. It makes them uncomfortable because they're afraid that that money is going to ruin their relationships with the people that matter most to them and it may ruin the the work ethic, the desire, the drive, the whatever you want to call it, of the next generation of their family. Absolutely. There's an old Chinese saying that shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Say that again. Shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Ah, uh, now I know where you're going The meaning that. behind it is that money doesn't generally last three generations. Yeah. It gets consumed, wasted, blown, destroyed, whatever adjective you want to use, by that third generation. Some people are very, very afraid of having too much money. Either they have too much money now and they're afraid of what's gonna, what it's going to do, or they're afraid of cum- accumulating too much money because of what, what it might do. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. All right, third question. I know I said there were four, but there's only three. Oh, it was a, it was a trick question. It was a trick. Question number three, final question about money. How was money treated in your life as a child? Think back to what it was like growing up in your household. What was money like? I know for me, it was about work. You had to work hard to make money. I come from three generations of workaholics. God bless my grandfather, my father, and my oldest brother. These men knew how to work. And God bless them, they were all very successful in their own ways as a result of an extraordinary work ethic. So my funny little anecdote to this is, you know, if you have a home alarm system, you have to have a password. So you trip the alarm. <laughs> right. And the alarm company calls you and you've got to know the password. Right. You got to have a password. So the house that I grew up in, any word in the English language is available as long as it's not a foul word. And in my family, the password for your alarm was work. <laughs> of course it was. So for me, you had to work hard to make money. It was a precious commodity that came at a laborious cost. Hmm. Wow. Thanks for sharing that, dude. Sure. Well, I think we've gone pretty deep on this kind of first step of the whole inventory process. And I think it's pretty clear now that there's a lot more to the wealth formation experience and achieving financial sobriety than just dollars and cents. There's so much more to how we define our wealth than what it says on our bank statements. If we don't get the underpinnings right, if we don't get the foundation right, the money's not going to make it. The money's not going to last. The thing's going to fall down. The family. People in our lives that bring us great energy. Cornerstone one. Occupation. How we give our unique gifts and talents away to the world. Cornerstone two. And then we have recreation. How do we bring fun, enjoyment, and laughter into our lives on a daily basis? Cornerstone three. And then, of course, we have this concept of money, the first part of money, which is really about our beliefs, our relationship with money, and how money was handled when we were kids, and how that relates to our lives today. That's cornerstone, yeah, I can say it, cornerstone number four. Now you've got the, the foundational elements of what our whole wealth formation experience is about. So it's next episode that we're going to get into the money even more. Now that we have this foundation in place, now we can start 
teaching you how to go about doing a financial inventory Yeah, when we actually look at the dollars so that we can go through this process of aligning those dollars with these things that we've identified as the cornerstone of our true wealth. Love it. All right. Well, that's that's a wrap for today for this episode of Your Financial Sobriety. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and be sure to subscribe. And check out our website, yourfinancialsobriety.com, for more information on upcoming events like our two-day live event we'll be hosting here in Sacramento, California in October of 2020. Thanks again for listening today. Here to help you find more clarity, confidence, and capability along your journey into financial sobriety, I'm Matthew Grishman. And Jim Gebhardt. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until then, be intentional with your money. Jim Gebhardt is a registered representative of and securities offered through Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, member SIPC. Jim Gebhardt and Matthew Grishman are investment advisor representatives of Gebhardt Group Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, and Gebhardt Group Incorporated are not affiliated. The opinions in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or investment recommendations. To determine which investments or financial advice may be appropriate for you, consult a financial advisor prior to investing. Any reference to market performance is based on historical information and there is no expressed or implied guarantee of future performance.